Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Making you want just a little bit more and definitely making us feel uninhibited. It could be that or the start of another Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, and it is, as always, my pleasure to welcome to the studio the film guys. I will introduce the filmist of film minds on the planet. He is the largest frame brain and the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress, and we call him friend and film guy. It's George Williman. George, welcome. I feel so personally uninhibited now <laughs> that I am not wearing pants. <laughs> also, to your radio white and in pants, I'm happy to report, he is the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for every movie since Raised in Arizona and many of the movies that we know and love. He's also our friend and film guy, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. I'm wearing George's clothes. <laughs> George, get your clothes off of me. <laughs> it's all very casual and family-like here on Filmically Perfect on 91. You know why? Because we love the pants off of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is a 1948-49, somewhere around in there. I was looking at the license plates in this movie, and I saw couple different license plates 48 and 49 that means that's what it's one of the beautiful things about this movie is the cool period shots the uh the film footage of american life in the big city in 1950 or thereabouts um it is uh that film that brings us together and which gentleman which film guy will tell us the uh the 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 bell of the matter here the title of today's movie is Young Man and with, with a, a Horn. <laughs> Which Growing seems... out of the middle of his forehead. Yes. <laughs> so many different images come to mind when you see it, but as it turns out, it's actually a, uh, a story not... about a, a musician. Yeah, there's not too many movies made about a trumpet player. And this is one of the most famous movies of all time about a trumpet player. Because in this movie, they have... Uh, a very famous trumpet player doing all the sound work, all the uh, trumpeteering. The, yes. So we trumpeteering. should say that this this movie is uh, based loosely on a novel that was written based loosely on the life of Big Spiderback. That is correct. Who was, of course, one of the uh, the finest. But that's not the person that's playing the horn in the background. That's Harry James, the world famous big band trumpeter. Is that's that right. Is? Yes, trumpeter. Trumpeter. And, and he like had a mouseketeer, but had with a trumpet. His own style. So it's not it's not just this sort of uh, uh, vaguely thinly veiled biopic, but it also is uh, staffed with amazing musicians from stem to stern, not the least of which Hoagie Carmichael. But gentlemen. Before we get further down that path, it is important to note that these films do not just come to the film guys in dreams. Oh, that might be good to be on the list. These films are not. (laughs) There is a strict and regimented process through which these films must travel. There are rules. And gentlemen, those rules are... A perfect movie creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains Regardless of changes in society, it retains its meaning and entertainment value. And a perfect movie such as this is never placed in preferential numerical order. It is perfect by its own scale. But wait a minute, stop the music. We've already gotten lip 
there, from Nikki Dakota. There has no been, pun intended here, there, of course. There is a uh, there's a a fourth rule, or is it is it it's rule number the five actually? First, yeah. we got to tell you why we have to pull that handle. Go ahead. Because give us your the lip. truth is, I find this movie not to fully um, uh, fulfill its obligations to rule number two. Stop right there. <laughs> I think that's technically rule number six, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, rule number that six. One. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Although I enjoyed this movie very, very much. One and three, solid, rock solid. I believe that people will be watching this movie for many, many years, and it's worth it. But uh, as, as we get along, I'll tell you what my reservations are. And I think um, uh, people that have seen this and will see this will back me up on it. But first... No, only the Down With Love crowd. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great movie, Dakota, and you know it. <laughs> I do like Down With Love. It is an awfully good movie. And we'll talk about that uh, maybe a little bit later on. But let's quickly, um, if George Williman with the large frame brain, you would take a moment and, and give us the arc of the action in this uh, 1950 fabulous black and white film. Yeah, well, the, uh, the story is about a young, um, a young guy uh, named Rick who um, is starting out in sort of in the rough life in New York, um, no, not New York, actually. Excuse me, it's Chicago. I wondered, I wondered which yeah. city. It's beautiful uh, it cityscapes. Absolutely gorgeous. And um, he's having a hard time because the kids don't treat him nice. And he ends up... His parents are gone. You yeah. know? He's been orphaned. And Fuzzy's one night sister he... drags him to all these beer joints and stuff. I did see that. Yeah, he um, he sees this combo playing in a, you know, on a dive somewhere. And he just sits there and watches them. Uh, and they finally sort of catch him, and he comes in and he tells them how much he likes the music, and especially the trumpet. And they kind of, the, the the leader of it, um, Hazard, his name is Ray Hazard. Art Hazard. We had to, Art, excuse we, me, Art Hazard. We really need to say something here is that this band is a black band. Right, it's a black combo. And at first, um, and one of my favorite shots, by the way, is um, of him. I don't know if they really were built that way or this was for somatic use, but. He's sitting in a, a window above a doorway, which conveniently has a ledge that he can sit on, looking over the top yeah, of the that's, door. Yeah, that's referred to as a transom. A transom. It's a transom. There we go, peeking in. He's peeking in through the transom. So the uh, art hazard sort of takes him in and teaches him the trumpet. And as he grows up, he grows up to be Kirk Douglas. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even said the, the amazing, yeah, the cast. They got some good cast members. Yeah, right. Kirk Douglas, and um, he goes out and he starts, you know, looking for work as a trumpeter, and gets a job with a band. And the lead singer with the band is another young up and comer, played by Doris Day. Doris Day, who is just the, the the beautiful epitome of pureness and goodness and earnestness, and she's a great singer. She's disgusting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, honestly, when you hear. Doris Day even talk. It's just her pipes are so beautiful. It's they really are. Her timbre is just unbelievable. This would have been really in her prime. Would it? Would mm-hmm. it? I mean, fair this to say, it's very early in. Her, I mean, yeah, she, she was, was just starting. Very svelte girl from Cincinnati. The um, actually interesting. Yeah, never mind. Um, <laughs> I was going to say something, but it totally doesn't apply. Yeah. All um, right. So. So Rick is with this band for a while, and he gets himself canned because he and some of the guys during a break play jazz. Yeah. They're not that's playing bad. they're not playing the syrupy sweet dance music that this band is known for. They're playing jazz. And I should mention that one of his friends that he makes along the way, a piano player named Smoke, who is played by an actual musician and composer, Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie freaking 
Carmichael is in this movie, and in right. some ways, he, he greets us at the opening. He has almost a narrator. Of a narrator character. He's in of quite a few Warner Brother movies back then. I love that. But um, he gets a job with a Rick gets a job with the second band, and it's in this band that's like a hotel band, and again, it's very syrupy music. <laughs> he he rediscovers his old mentor playing at a club called Galba's. Um, and Galba's a little restaurant out in the middle of nowhere, and they're playing the band, and and he reconnects with his old mentor. And when he gets done working his pan job, he goes down and plays for free at this nightclub. And one night as he's heading out, he is confronted by his band leader, uh, who's played by Jerome Cowan, who was always really good at playing heels, mm-hmm. uh, about why is he doing this and, you know, what does he think he's doing? And here's a little piece from that film. Oh, Rick. I just wanted to tell you, you were great tonight. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Say, look, uh, how you live is your own business, but I've been around a long time, you know what I mean? No. What's the matter, Mr. Morrison? Now, why do you have to go to Galba's all the time? Don't you get enough trumpet playing here from eight to one? Well, not my kind of trumpet playing. Listen, I pay you good money. At Galba's, you play for free. And you're a big draw there, just so old man Hazard keeps his job. Now, that may be very nice. Mr. Hazard's a friend of mine. Okay, okay. Just that you're not doing yourself any good, Rick. Staying up all night, playing your head off? I thought you were satisfied with my work. I am. I am. I'm just telling you for your own good. Why bother with a bunch of... Wait a minute, Rick. Now, where are you going? Galvis. Oh, man. A bunch of what? Yeah. What was he going to say, I wonder? So it was kind of daring, you, you gentlemen were saying, to, to yeah. be pointing this we'll out Yeah, we'll let at that George time. finish the, yeah. the roundup, and then we'll talk a little bit about well, that. Well, as as Rick's star continues to rise, he he becomes more and more difficult to work with, and he becomes quite a quite a prima donna. I mean, he can, uh, and also taking up alcohol. Yeah, he starts drinking. Mm. He starts carousing, and but then it's, it's guilt, right? It's guilt. And then Doris Day's character introduces him to a friend of hers who's studying to be a doctor. Uh, who is an actress who is known to her friends as Betty Joan Persky. Yes. That's who the rest of us name. know as Lauren Bacall. Who really is Smoke. Yeah. And here and here is a little uh, sequence where they first meet and she kind of puts him on the spot about jazz. Tell me about jazz. Do you think it's purely African? I don't know. I don't do much thinking about it. I just like to play it. If you listen to it and I... I didn't come here to listen to it. I came to study the people. Watch their faces. They're interesting. There's something about jazz that releases inhibitions. It's a sort of cheap, mass-produced narcotic. I gather you don't like jazz. Not particularly. Oh, I know it's supposed to be our native art. Cotton fields, the levees, old New Orleans, and blues in the night. Excuse me, please. <laughs> so, Rick, Rick, in his work, in his life, he's been looking for the perfect note. Perfect strong, clear note, and he can't find it anywhere. And this, of course, is driving him to drink. Uh, he, for for all the wrong reasons, marries Lauren Bacall's character, uh, even though she tells him not to. And their married life just falls apart, and it's just it's just dreadful. It gets a little soapy in there. Yeah, it gets, a, a it gets soapy very soapy. And uh, and he, he lose, ends up losing his job with the band, just continues just going down down the tube. His, his old mentor, Art Hazard, passes away, and that destroys him even further. Um, and she just sees him as a plaything. She's right, this she's rich kid thing. that she's always had all these things. She's been this great student, but she just never 
finishes everything. It gets well, bored. And in fact, in one scene that would be traumatic to almost any music aficionado where she's finally had it with him and begins to yank all of his precious records out of the cabinet and smash them. Not quite like uh, Blackbird Jungle, but... Yeah, but um, close enough still. Yeah. Um, so he end, ends up taking to the street, and he's in a drunken, drunken And that haze. is one of the best man-down scenes ever made. I mean, it's just shot so beautifully. And the best part is when his trumpet that he he walks around with this hook and this arm. Yeah, right? he's got to like have he's his cradling. Horn. It's like a yeah, certain he's, cradle. You, you think aspect. he wants a bottle of booze because he's an alcoholic, <laughs> but he goes to the pawn shop and he gets this trumpet, trumpet and he puts it in a paper bag. And then he's stumbling <laughs> and he's stumbling under this really great music and Times Square and everything, and it falls onto the ground and that car rolls. Car runs over right it. over it. Mm. Ooh, that disturb. Mm. That is a disturbing mm. image. It's almost as bad as being hit. In the bell of a horn, or have it, you know, Ooh. chip a tooth. With Ooh. It. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah I do see. So, anyways, he ends up in, a, in an alcoholic sanatorium, and they get a hold of his old buddy Smoke, um, who comes and gets him because they can't help him. It's not, it's not the booze. He's just, he's very, very sick. So they get him to the hospital, and um, and I don't really want to go any farther because I don't want to give away the ending. Oh, so we're not going to do a spoiler we're not alert. Do a spoiler alert. All right. But uh, suffice to say. You know, the thing, cool looking hospital. Things too, work yeah. out, and you know, it's just start sh- sh- showing sort of the, you know, the the how music can't be everything, but it, um, you know, if you don't have the humanity to go with it and whatever that. Yeah, is. we got that. We got that really cool ending. Uh, we got that on the over there on the projector. Um, let me. Oh, Where this thing it just never works when I want it to go. Jiggle the. Yeah, there, there you go. Sure, we we can play some of the old ones. The good ones we used to play. You and Smoke and me and Art. They want words that they don't have to listen to us. We can play for ourselves. We got no words. We we can't say what we mean. We just gotta feel it. Here's the note. Now, I'll tell you what. This, you're probably driving in your car saying, that's pretty funny and corny. <laughs> but here's here's a couple elements to consider when you're watching this film. First of all, it was directed by one of the greatest directors of the motion picture cinema history. There's nobody that compares to this man. George and I have often wanted to just do a show on this guy, Michael Curtiz. He made how many films, George? 173. That is a lot. I was going to say, how how long a time? Almost 50-year period. And this is a little bit later in his career, almost at the back end of it. And what you're going to watch in this show is absolutely flawless storytelling. That right there amazing storytelling right there you can't you'll laugh ha 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 but you're gonna watch this thing and you're gonna be hooked because you're gonna watch these seamless transitions beautifully composed shot rock hard composition just it's steady 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 and the most 
eloquent montages you're ever going to see on a movie. And it's from all this guy's history of making movies. He's got his tool bag out on, on the workbench, and he's pulling everything out. Until he's a weathered craftsman. And he's got this Gershwin background going on when it has to. He's got Kirk Douglas in profile a lot of times because he's so handsome. Um, and you have him juxtaposed against one of the greatest skylines of the era in the in the 40s, New York City. And they, they don't miss a building, man. And Unless the, it's Chicago. Well, it's, well, it's part, part of it is he in goes Chicago. to New York later. He does, doesn't but the he? New, York New York stuff is, yeah. is a solid stuff. It's yeah. what opens the picture. And I know because that's where my hotel room is. It's right there. We're talking about Young Man with a Horn, the 1950 uh, classic movie. Perfect movie in very nearly every way, starring Kirk Douglas and uh, Doris Day and Lauren Bacall, and uh, directed by the, the uh, truly uh, notable director, Michael Curtiz. Uh, filmically perfect, featuring this uh, black and white movie. It's worth saying that it is. Beautiful. It is beautiful at every I mean, turn. It, it comes out of the. It's a very, very tail end of the of the Hollywood studio oh, era. Yeah. This is just before the studios began, sort of a falling apart because of television, and mm. B being taken apart because of some trust busting, and also just before the the dawn of the the communist blacklist, which we'll get to here in yeah. a minute. Yeah. There is, now there is a an, an, an sort of an element of that. When you're watching this picture. One of the reasons it sparkles and moves with such just seamless kind of energy is because the people that Michael Curtiz is working with, they're all like tag team wrestlers. You know, they know each other intuitively. Carl Foreman, uh, his cinematographer, um, Jack Screenwriters, Foreman. They just, they just wham, 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 wham. And all the way through that movie, they're, they complement each other with such style and elegance. You're just sucked into it. Now, the third incredibly interesting element about Young Man with a Horn, and I'm open for challenges here. I don't think there's ever been a movie up to that point that went right up to somebody's nose and said, you're a racist. And that's exactly what they're doing metaphorically in this movie. They're, in 1950, They're even. calling people out like the, in that one section because – his father figure is Art Hazard, this a black musician who teaches him everything. And he, he also loves him. He loves him great with passion. And then he gets pressure from his peers. And then when Art Hazard needs him, he's not there. He sends him away in a drunken stupor. And Art Hazard steps in front of a car. I know you think that's corny, but you got to look at this. It is corny. This but is it's a sad. cultural. This is a cultural metaphor because he never really. Makes up with Art Hazard. He didn't, yeah. Yeah, so he's totally on the hook for his sins against Art Hazard, which is a very, very metaphor uh, kind of disposition for our society toward black people in the late 40s. And only Marco, Michael Curtiz actually points this out with uh, almost in your face, without, and he does it with nice style. Now, you know, you'll see at the end that Kirk Douglas goes down. He goes down because, you know, he's so burdened with his self-guilt and loathing over what he did to Art Hazard, he's never going to be able to make that up to him. Never. And in the end, you know, I'm sure that Warners went in there and at the end they said, well, we got to have a happy ending. So he amazingly recovers, of course, and uh, he's playing again. But you got to look at the racial context of this movie and the period it was in. Um, this is a real kind of reflection on, on how our culture was 
right there, right in front of you on this How movie. How was music, he, jazz? Yeah, jazz. Oh, it's bad. It's evil. But this was in 1915, so jazz could have been, you know, becoming getting on people's radar for now 20, 30, and some people maybe in 40 years. That right. so, but it still had this cachet. How how was this movie received? Did people respond to it, or was it? Something of as a, far as I know, it, it did pretty well. Yeah. Um, well, Kirk Douglas was Kirk a Douglas, huge leading man, right? Kirk du- no, he wasn't. Not that this time. Is, this oh, is so like this his was second or third part of his platforming to, to becoming famous. Yeah. And uh, as far as I know, it did pretty well. I'd actually have to look that up. I, I didn't really care how well it had done yeah. back then. But you know, it's that doesn't make any difference to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, the, that movie the, the, floated the, up on television a lot through the yeah. 60s I mean, and the 70s. As Jay Todd said, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of a gutsy thing for Warner Brothers to, to tackle the race issue at this time. It was beginning. There was a little bit of beginning. There's a few films you see from, from that era where they started actually – recognizing that there are people who are different from ourselves mm-hmm. and that they are people, you know, mm-hmm. and they have feelings. Uh, but but still, it was still kind of, you know, it was a, uh, kind of a small... And Lauren Bacall... So something brave in this. Lauren yeah. Bacall, she looks at it as a science experiment mm-hmm. and, or a social experiment. If you notice in this movie, there's some really clever things in there where Lauren Bacall turns off her lamp. It's a black person on a lamp. Uh, oh yeah there's yeah. all sorts of little teeny elements through this movie that show attitudes in our society in one, of my, well, one of my favorite parts about filmically perfect is is getting hip to becoming aware of these somewhat um their their modes they're like a language a, a visual language that i did not notice that i love to find that and now i have to go watch it again jay todd well, and she she thinks that doris day is is n- you know, too normal. She's sophisticated. She's able to look down on those who look down on other people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and even something that, that I'm surprised that that Jay Todd didn't notice that I did. I don't see if you noticed this. Let's see. Uh, as as the marriage deteriorates, there comes a point when Lauren Bacall, as the wife, is starting to spend more time with a female artist friend of hers i didn't notice it at all i did and, not notice and and I'm, it kind of bothers me now that i'm the one that noticed this. maybe it's just you but George. It's, kind of, it's probably just me maybe i need to re-examine myself um, <laughs> we may have to do the belt buckle test <laughs> but so yeah, you're saying like, that there may even may have, have a, a little um well, they even looked into lesbianism you know, in, uh, yes. in 1950 yeah uh, we're talking about young man with the horn uh the 1950 film starring uh, kirk douglas lauren bacall doris day directed by the great michael curtiz and uh based on a novel a 1938 novel by dorothy baker who who then this uh, the screenwriter carl foreman yes. um yes. so there was a couple of this, layers of, yeah. of interpretation but and and foreman is really interesting and, and foreman is probably one of the reasons that some of these social issues are in there because he became quite quite big with that. In fact, it got him in a lot of trouble Yes, because Carl Foreman was one of the casualties of the McCarthy blacklist during the 50s, uh, found himself basically unhireable for a long time. Because he wouldn't talk, play. basically. And, 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 and so, right. He wouldn't so name names. Was, he wouldn't, he wouldn't name names. Right. And because of that, he barely worked again. How, do you, was this one of the last films? He must, this must is have one been. of the last films for a while that he actually got his name on. Uh, the, oh. I think the next two films but, he did, actually he used a, a pseudonym. And then suddenly his next couple projects – it's interesting. He did actually keep working, but he couldn't have his name on there because he wrote 
the screenplay for uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm. And it wasn't until 1997 that he was reinstated as you know, as being allowed to be talked about. 97. Yeah, and he'd been dead 13 years by then. Now, time. in another, Aww. in another uh, similar to what we're talking about in this film, where he, they are using uh, a story for social attitudes. Metaphorical. Yeah. yeah. His ultimate metaphor was in High Noon, as we mentioned when we were talking about High Noon. Also, the screenwriter on that. Gary, years later, two Gary years later. Cooper is almost a mirror story of Carl Foreman because it was during that movie that everybody abandoned him and walked away from Stanley He needed Kramer, people to stand with him and, and they would and not they stand would not. with him. And Carl Foreman, there's quite a few interviews about this, and, and, and he wrote an incredible screenplay, and that is kind of like a, you're seeing yourself. It was almost like, what was the Escher where you see the hand drawing mm-hmm. the hand? hand drawing mm-hmm. himself, yeah. yeah, that's kind of what mm-hmm. that was, man. Um, and, you know, Carl Foreman had his finger on the pulse of a lot of stuff that was going on. He was able to put it into his writing. Right, and you actually you will find that if we ever get a chance going around talking more about the blacklist and what happened to some of those people, a lot of them, if they were able to continue working, found projects that mirrored what was happening to them in their real life. How so and amazingly, real. most of the people they were working for were too dumb to realize that they were being, you know, aced by these people. So, yeah. Uh, young man with a gun, uh, with a gun, with a horn. <laughs> oh, that's a different movie. Isn't it? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, definitely creates the world. And by the way, two scenes that I particularly love, the hospital scene, as you pointed out. And Harry James doesn't do the trumpet in Young Man with a Gun. No, he doesn't. Um, I also like the old time bowling alley <laughs> oh, with the little alley, kid yeah. when he was setter, working. A yeah. pin setter. There used to be a human that would yeah. set the pins back into the frame so that they could be placed onto the end of the bowling alley. And the little kid worked there. And I just loved... That whole thing. I mean, I may have never been able never to see that, yeah. you know, just I love some of the, the snapshots, particularly of Maracana, little pieces. I mean, it wasn't all filmed on a stage. There's, there's... No, you'll see in one really cool scene, Kirk Douglas is looking into uh, this glass. He's looking at a sign in the glass, and you'll see this woman behind him, like, do a take. And then, and then you'll see it just as they cut out. I think that Curtiz was shooting wild stuff. Or a he was gorilla, like, gorilla shooting. Yeah, the even back oh, then. And that's and, illegal, and then isn't they it? Noticed, no, it's just no. that the, not too many people did it with that equipment back then. And yeah. you will see this woman's eyes kind of like she saw Kirk Douglas. Boom, it's gone. <gasps> oh, how fun! Little thing like that. I will give you rule one on that. It's rule two where I come down with a little bit. I don't. I find that the acting to be a little bit hokey, a little bit uh, sort of a cliched. We, we, we give the rules around here, young lady. <laughs> I know that. You don't need to give us the rules. We give <laughs> you the but, rules. But and so and I found it just the, the some aspect of the storyline just really borderlined on um, melodramatic for me. So well, that's you know you, your sophistication it was, can grow. It was and it well, can, yeah, and I also, appreciate I mean, your I mean, willingness I mean, to accept that. I mean, they put the melodramatic part in there for the ladies for you. Yes, but I found it, well, I know. If I had been a bit younger, maybe, but I'm so jaded. But uh, for rule number three, I think you're right, uh, gentlemen. I do believe that people will be watching this movie for a long time. And it is worth watching just to see it is such a rich movie to to see. Just the the, the images on the screen, not to mention uh, a, a pretty good story and, and halfway decent. And also acting. Lauren Bacall, who's just smoking hot. Oh, she is so. You know that's the that's the cool thing about movie stars. That is the cool thing about looking at movie stars because they are movie stars. Yeah, you know? these are three, that's the best part. Three movie stars in this film. 
So uh, really bonafide movie stars. I'm going to give you. She's um, you know, Lauren McCall's still around, and I met her back in 1997. Oh, she was still around back then. Yeah. She, the Queen Lauren. We all had to go up and like kiss her ring. I bet she was beautiful up to the very end, very 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 end. Actually, she, all three she's of the still stars around. Are, she's still around. Yeah. Actually, all three <laughs> of the stars are yeah. around. They're all around. So everyone alive and well and living to tell, and a perfect movie done and set about here on Filmically Perfect on 91. 3WY. And so we've been talking about Young Man with a Horn from 1950. It is perfect. It has a couple little just sways. That's a little from your dips opinion. Oh, fine, 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 <laughs> fine. Folks, just, you know. It's just Nikki's just opinion. Just watch the movie. You'll like She's it. a moderator. You will. Watch out. You're not going to get cut by her. She's only a moderator. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, it's such a treat to be in the same room with you. And I always do learn something on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3. And uh, George Willeman, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's Jay Todd Anderson. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much. From guys. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.